What up, honkies and honkettes? Welcome to the pre-show ramble. Just to remind you, we have a new pride level at the $2 price point, and you got to get your asses in there because as of tonight, I will be on doing a live recap show along with Mark, along with Howie, along with JB, breaking down all the shiz that have been blizzed at that Democratic debate. Of course, we're also going to have John Odermatt, Rico, I believe special guest Remzo Martinez, and another TBD guest for Thursday's recap. And of course, we're going to be doing these ongoing as well. So you can get that for just $2 by joining today. Go to patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. That'll give you access to all of our live streaming content. However, you got to spend the full five bucks to get all of the actual bonus content like Conspiracy Corners, like Do Nothing Man, like Degenerate Gamblers, etc. So get your asses over there, sign up, give us some money, patreon.com forward slash Lions of Liberty. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Yes, I'm here. I still live. Clings to life. I am still in existence, still on this plane of existence. Mind you, I've not gone on to heaven or hell. I don't really believe in either of them. But I haven't uh, been recycled. I haven't come back into this industrial waste plant that we call Earth either. (laughs) My energy hasn't been continued and put into some other husk as of yet. After surviving 2019 Pork Fest. And uh, had a good time. Went out there with a bunch of buddies. You know, came out there with Stapleton. He flew out with us and joined us on our rides to and fro. Hung out with us the whole time. Met up with Dan Smots of The System Is Down. Dan joined us and did a lot of video work with us. Helping Mark to uh, facilitate some interviews. Also taping Do Nothing Man Live, which I just released to our Pride. Uh, we also met up with some of our listeners out there. Craig from our Lions of Liberty Pride. or One of our Mufasa members is out there. Tori came out. Had Joe and Tyler out there. Tyler also Mufasa member. So a lot of fun to be had at Porkfest, guys. And uh, yeah, frankly, to hear the stories from Porkfest, you'll have to join the Pride. <laughs> Should have said that during it. I was pushing the Pride at the top of the show. But, uh, you know, those are the degenerate gambler style stories. And you don't get them for free. <laughs> you got to have all your secrets, all your dirty, dirty secrets behind a paywall. But um, yeah, man, I'm back. I'm still tired. I will tell you that much. Still tired for this episode number 130 of Electric Liberty Land, meaning you could go to lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL130 if you want to find any of the show notes, links to the stories I will be discussing today. Uh, I'll give a brief, brief, brief recap of what I did at Porkfest. None of the dirty stuff, but, you know, we rolled in there. It's, It's, if you don't know, Porkfest is out in, is at Roger's campground because, of course, Roger Paxton of the Lava Flow actually ran Porkfest and always good catching up with Roger because it's funny, Roger's got this kind of MO, especially online. <laughs> the way Roger argues is very much in your face, no holds barred, take no prisoners. <laughs> Are you a slave? Are you a statist? And, uh, but I swear, man, you meet Roger in person and he is just the nicest guy in the world, just super fun. Awesome sense of humor, and I always enjoy seeing him at Porkfest. Of course, he also gave us access to the VIP tent, which I really appreciate. 
spend a lot of time in there getting hammered on that all-you-can-drink bar. But yeah, so we saw saw Roger drove about you know, three hours in from the airport, flying to Boston, get our rental car. We had two different uh, trains coming in because Mark, Dan Smots, and Howie came in first. And of course, Mark did a lot of videos that night and had a, a panel that he co-hosted with. Dan was on there. Um, I believe Nick McCone from Sounds Like uh, Liberty was on there. I'm not sure who exactly else is on that podcast with them. But they were in in one car. I rolled in later with Howie, or not Howie, with uh, Rico and Jason Stapleton and John Odermatt the next day. And yeah, just had a blast. I mean, it is, it's one of those odd events, Porkfest, where you get there and it's kind of like cloudy rain. You get there and you're like, you're like, oh boy, there's a bunch of yahoos here, a bunch of Liberty yahoos up in this joint. But, you know, it's one of those things where you, you have way more fun than you think you're ever going to have at a libertarian convention. And every year we're like, do we want to go to Porkfest this year? God, it's such a pain in the ass to get to. And we moan and we cry and we bitch the whole time leading up to the event. And then we get there and we just have the time of our lives. And that is really what, uh, what went on again. Uh, the sort of details of which again, will not be revealed on this public podcast, but we'll be behind the paywall. So we're going to, we're going to record our degenerate gamblers recap show probably sometime next week, because with the democratic debates happening this week, and of course our live recap shows, having to watch those, then do a live uh, recap show right after they end for an hour. We just don't have time. Then Mark and I are actually both out of town for a buddy's bachelor party. I have to fly to new Orleans at like 5 a.m. on Friday morning. So no rest for the wicked guys. Woo, just shit and evil. I did. I shot straight evil, by the way. I mean, shit straight evil on uh, the morning I had to leave. That's Sunday morning before I had that six and a half hour flight. But anyway, whatever. I'm alive. We're all here. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land. And thank you for joining me. And also thank you to all the people that did come up at Porkfest and said hi to me. Thanks everybody that came out to live Do Nothing Man and all of our shows and, and interacted with us throughout the event. We really do appreciate you guys and, uh, and love seeing all of our fans out there. So let's get into it. What do you think? And uh, this show, I want to start off talking primarily about Trump and Iran. I know everybody's going to be talking about it, but you can't get around it because we had this massive buildup, right? We had John Bolton. We had Mike Pompeo. We had the mainstream goddamn media all beating the war drum as hard as they possibly could. I mean, I'm reading on June 21st articles from Antiwar, uh, news.antiwar.com. I'll link to these again in all the show notes. But just talking about how every time you see this, and we saw this with Syria as well. I remember, who was it? Like Don Lemon or, or Van Jones, somebody, uh, some, some black talking head on CNN basically was like, tonight's the night that Donald Trump really became president. And the man had just sent over Tomahawk missiles or whatever the hell they were that we bombed Syria with for a false flag attack, which by the way, as I talked with a few shows ago, they found a link to a, uh, a specific engineering group that went in there, examined these quote-unquote chemical weapons attacks that took place in Syria, supposedly ordered by Assad, and found that they were complete bullshit. I'm not going to sing the song this episode. You have to listen. If you want to hear, this is fucking bullshit. You got to go back in episode guides. I don't do the same. I'm not a one-trick pony. I do at least three tricks, one of which is that trick where the horse jumps off the top, the diving board, into a small pool of water, and just fuck myself up, just crush myself against the ground in a bloody mess. Anyway, they found that these chemical attacks in Syria were basically just garbage. That what they said happened, how uh, they were 
attack through the roof and yada, yada, this bullshit. No, not attack through the roof. Canisters were placed in these houses and set off. The damage wasn't consistent. None of it added up. But yet, Trump got all of the kudos from mainstream media on both sides, from leftists and rightists in the main two political parties for becoming president by taking decisive action and sending over missiles to bomb a country which we have no interest in, no strategic value to us, but just for meddling. So, mainstream media came out earlier this week and they all pretty much broadly united behind attacking Iran after Iran shot down a United States drone. Something like a $110 million drone, which I don't even know how the hell one drone can cost $110 million. I can pretty much buy a drone for $50 that can do a lot of what the drones that they're using can do out there. It seems like if you times whatever that drone is by a thousand, uh, you should be able to make a, a reasonable drone for, you know, maybe, maybe have a, have a 5 million guys, have a 5 million for drone. No, $110 million. Anyway, what ended up happening here is Trump was on the verge of calling an attack through, and then he found out that an attack, a uh, responsive attack to shooting down our little toy, which of course is flying over an enemy's airspace, who we have not declared war against, other than economically via sanctions. I mean, <laughs> I just love this concept. We're going to go to war because we came over there with our drone and are flying it around in your airspace, but you're not allowed to shoot it down. If there was somebody hovering a drone in my backyard, you can bet your goddamn ass I'm going to use whatever tactic I can to take that thing out of the air. And also, side note about this, Something that people aren't really talking about, but I've seen it reported in a couple of the, of the news sites that I read, of course, is just that the American military is actually shocked that Tehran has upped its, upped its uh, military response game. They didn't used to have the ability to shoot down these drones in this fashion, but probably with the help of Russia, they've been able to up their defensive systems. Not only their defensive system for shooting down aircraft uh, or for launching missiles at opposing targets at long range, but in, you know, in this capability to shoot down these aircraft, that's a vital thing for them to have. Because as you saw with the Iraq war, America's military's power really came in that air force. You know, the Iraq, Iraq had basically MIGs from 1982 and we're in there. You're not even actually at the time. God, they probably were from the seventies, but we went in there. We had far superior air power. We could, they couldn't touch us. They basically had all these vaunted ground troops, which meant absolutely nothing when you're just dropping bombs and straight bombing everybody to death. So long story short, Tehran showed with this uh, defensive strike against our drone that they do have the capability to at least defend themselves to a certain extent. Now, getting back to it. So Trump finds out that this attack on on Iran, if he wanted to go through with it, would kill 150 people. Uh, And these are, you know, people that are, going to be citizens. They're not going to be people that are strictly military personnel. It will take in probably 150 and probably more. And, you know, you, typically we see underreported death tolls and the analysis of what, at what, you know, what these attacks are going to do. Typically, they're going to deliver a number that is the bare minimum. You know, like, okay, well, here's what we think we're going to get because we're so good, we can target it. Still 150 people, by the way. So, you know, that's probably ended up going to be uh, probably like 300 people. So Trump, much to his credit and shocking the world, decides that we don't need to do this and that he's not okay with that morally. 
And he says that this is not a proportionate reaction to them shooting down an unmanned drone. Bravo. This is what we wanted from this man all along when he ran on a platform of, I'm not going to get us into any more wars. And by the way, he just came out and said in a Wall Street Journal report, who I don't even know, I, I guess they got this from some, some of the good leakers. <laughs> if they're going to be good or bad leakers, they're all good, in my opinion. Anything you leak is good. But you know, Wall Street Journal's reporting that Trump said he's rejecting attacking Iran because, quote, we don't need any more wars. And there were very few people in the room to which he addressed this comment that agreed with him. They're saying of the very few, General Dunford was one of the few people that agreed with him. And they're quoting Trump as saying to his confidants in the inner circle, quote, these people want to push us into war. It's so disgusting. We don't need any more wars. I think that's fantastic. I mean, considering the run-up, considering all of the things that we've seen come into play, all of the rhetoric being thrown around. I mean, and granted, this also comes on the heels of Trump increasing economic sanctions, which, you know, they're going to, at some point, Iran will be pushed to the brink because they're continuing now to clamp down on their economic ability, their, their ability to trade. Now they're saying that the Ayatollah is not able to use the international financing system, the international banking system. Again, raises the question, why should the United States have the say over this? If, they, if other countries, if other banks want to, com- want to communicate, if they want to have financial transactions with Iran, just because Iran doesn't agree with the United States and, the, and agree with the United States' quote-unquote interests and agree that the United States should have a finger in every fucking pie in the Middle East, why the hell do we get to say that these people cannot even operate in an international monetary finance system? In what world would any nation think that that's okay? For one superpower to control the ability of any other nation to engage in the simple act of banking. And yet we wonder why people don't like us. So the overall takeaway from this, and again, I, this is going to be my, my catchphrase. My branding is on point here, a shorter episode, because I am fucking exhausted. But what the, the takeaway from this, just to sum this all up, is that we're seeing what we hope is Trump's true feelings coming out here. We're we're hoping that we're seeing a man who is at his core opposed to war, who is at his core opposed to killing innocents. But at the same time, we know that he has continued this drone warfare. This drone wouldn't have been shot down if he hadn't been. We know, per Michael Bolden, who always loves to talk about this, that Trump has gone through more bombs even than Obama, who had the name Obama for a fucking reason. We know that Trump has decided to stop reporting casualties from our bombing runs because they were an embarrassment. And on top of all this, Trump also says that even though he's decided not to attack Iran, that he still doesn't think he needs congressional approval. He says, I like this is this is in regards to telling Congress about an attack. He says, quote, I do like keeping them abreast, but I don't have to do it legally. This is what he's insisting. And this is because Nancy Pelosi told him he needs congressional approval. He says he disagrees with that. This is after Ron Rand Paul has made a, a fucking point to drive it into his skull. Rand Paul, his golf buddy, 
that you need congressional approval, that only Congress can declare war. But again, because we've got this AUMF bullshit, because we had the attacks on 9-11, we have these ongoing wars. We have this ongoing presidential, just uninhibited, aggressive posture, which Congress seems too cowardly to shoot down. And I don't fucking understand it. Even if you're a member of Congress who supports the president, right? Why would you want to give one man the power to continuously engage in acts of war against any country he desires? It doesn't make basic sense. Why would you not want to protect your best interests? We see government expand itself. We see people in government expand their influence, expand their monetary income, expand their relevance by continuously annexing different fucking parts of the government, annexing different parts of the economy, annexing different parts of civil liberties society. Why would they give this up and not get it back? We're talking about waging war. Why wouldn't you want to keep that in your pocket? But continuously, Congress allows this. Continuously, they refuse to vote on it to take it back. Unbelievably aggravating. So anyway, that kind of sums up where we are right now. Here's a little cherry on top for this story. All this is going on in Iran. In the meantime, we still don't have the media reporting on Yemen because they don't seem to have a real problem with it. All of the mass murder going on there, all of the United States-backed atrocities that are going on, all of the children dead, all of the women dead, all of the families displaced. And now, by the way, just uh, another side note to a side note. The United Nations just released a report saying some 71 million people have been displaced at this point because of these, these wars going on. Not just our wars, mind you, but globally, 71 million. But if I had to take a guess how many people we're responsible for displacing, I would say it's got to be up in the high 50s. <laughs> I mean, to say that we're not involved in virtually any conflict across the globe is just being completely naive. We're always involved. There's always a side we're backing in some of these conflicts, you know, whatever they might be. But anyway, so in regards to Yemen, Trump said that allowing the FBI to investigate the Khashoggi murder, because, you know, there's a lot of evidence connecting the Saudi prince to the murder of the journalist Khashoggi. But to allow the FBI to, the FBI to investigate Khashoggi's murder would jeopardize Saudi arms sales. Just take that into account. Trump's saying that the murder shouldn't be investigated, that a citizen being taken in, dismembered while he's alive, piece by piece, because he reported on our allies' government and its allies, our allies' leadership. We should look the other way, not question about that, not question our relationships with people who would do that sort of thing, not, not worry about the civil liberties, the press freedoms that that country has as one of its basic tenets, or lack thereof. And instead, we should just consider that water under the bridge because there's over $100 billion in arms sales that have gone through to Saudi Arabia. And they're going to spend 400 to 450 billion over a period of time, which all comes down to money and jobs for Americans. So I guess we're looking at Trump, right? 
Trump's a big fan of tariffs, and he views tariffs as a tax protecting American American jobs and American industries from these foreigners. So I suppose that Trump considers murder and dismemberment of a journalist, it's just like another tariff. It's the dismemberment tariff. And, you know, sometimes we're going to have to take the brunt of that tariff or, or just, you know, basic, I don't know, human compassion, basic moral uh, righteousness is going to have to take one on the chin, pay that tariff so that we can protect the military industrial complex, the bomb builders, the uh, aircraft carrier builders, well, not aircraft carriers, but the, the jet strikers, the helicopters, the Cobras, whatever you want to say, whatever the fuck we're sending over to Saudi Arabia. We're just going to have to pay that tariff in blood so that these industries can keep on pumping out this shit. And a very few select companies can continue to make millions and billions of dollars in profit. Just absolutely fucking disgusting. All right, that's enough about war and uh, and the Middle East for now. Let's wrap up a little bit more on Trump just with a quick a quick comedy blooper courtesy of Anderson Cooper who had on columnist E Jean Carroll. I guess she has a column called Ask E Jean. It's an advice column that has been appeared in L magazine since 1993. So, let me play the clip for you and then we can go a little bit more into the detail. You don't feel like a victim. I was not thrown on the ground and ravished, which the word raped carries so many sexual connotations. This was not this was not sexual. It just it, it hurt. It just what it just, you know, well, I think most people think of rape as a, I mean, it is a violent assault. It is not. I think most people think of rape as being sexy. Mm. Let's take a short break. Think of the fantasies. Mm. We're just going to take a quick break. If you can stick around, we'll talk more on the other side. You're fascinating to talk to. (laughs) You hear me laughing now, but you can hear Anderson Cooper's awkward laughter after she's like, you're fun to talk to as well. Um, If you haven't seen the video, which again, I will put at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL 130. This woman looks a little... A little kooky crazy. I'm not going to lie to you. She, uh, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to judge whether or not her claim has veracity based upon her looks, but she does look like Glenn, Co- Glenn Close and David Bowie merged into one human being. And uh, she just has a very odd manners about her where she honestly comes across as not being all there. And you can tell by this clip, she doesn't really help herself by saying that rape is in fact, most people consider rape to be sexy, I can tell you for a fact, most people do not think rape is sexy. Most people view rape as, as Anna Scooper was trying to say, a inherently violent, aggressive, demeaning, uh, atrocious act. And to say that most people think that it's sexy and some sort of, you know, turns them on. I mean, don't get me wrong. There might be some attraction to a rape fantasy. And she makes a comment in regards to that. But to say that, all rape is fairly unanimously looked upon as this act of act of sexitude. I, I, I don't know. I, I don't get it. Now, to go into a little more detail on why she is on Anderson Cooper talking about rape and who she's talking about, she is talking about Donald Trump. And per a, uh, a New York Magazine excerpt from a new book she has coming out, What Do We Need Men For? Question mark, a modest proposal. 
Carol describes how Trump cornered her in a Bergdorf Goodman dressing room uh, sometime in the mid-1990s and raped her while she struggled to escape. She says she taught, you know, fought Trump off. She told two friends about the assault, and they confirmed her account to New York. Again, this doesn't mean that it actually happened. She is the only person telling the story, and she told two friends. So there is that for what it's worth. And um, he, she says it gets even weirder. So per Carol, she says that Trump recognized her outside of the department store 23 years ago. She was leaving, and he was entering. She says he stopped her and called out, Hey, you're that advice lady. So she goes, oh, and you're that top 20 real estate developer. And I don't know, I guess she was attracted to him. She says that she doesn't remember Donald Trump being this good looking, but he was apparently good looking to her at the time being when he was younger. So they go back inside the store. They go back into Bergdorf's where this hell took place. He says, hey, what should I get? A hat? Should I get a scarf? How about underpants or lingerie? Then she goes, oh, okay. So he goes, all right, here, here, picks up some flimsy thing. He says, here, you go try it on. She says, why don't you go try it on? And then he says, why don't we both go try it on? So they go back into the dressing room together. Uh, why she agreed to this, I don't know. She says at the time she thought, this is going to be hilarious. I'll put it on top of him. Regardless, she goes back, according to her, her story, into the dressing room with him. He immediately tries to kiss her, and she says that he you know, slammed his lips up against her lips and hurt her head when he banged against the wall. And then he held her against the wall. She said she was laughing this whole time, I guess, uh, because it was so awkward to know what to do. And then she says that he unzipped his pants somehow and managed to put, uh, you know, half of his, his dick in her. She says she doesn't remember him ejaculating, but then she fought him off and went outside and told her two friends this story. Her two friends did corroborate this in New York Magazine as much as they were able anyway, because they weren't there to see it. Uh, they weren't there to hear it. She just told them and they said, okay, yeah, we remember being told this story. Donald Trump says he doesn't remember it at all and doesn't know this woman at all. So several questions come up. Number one, you know, why would she go back in this? Why, why would in the world you ever go back into a, a dressing room at Bergdorf's with this man in the first place? I know people will probably give me shit for this, but it does seem fairly obvious to me at least that you're sending a signal by going back there. Now that doesn't mean that you go in and the guy immediately should be able to assault you or anything like that, but sends an odd signal, just you agreeing to go back into a dressing room to try on lingerie with somebody, you know, you might want to say no to that and walk away. Number two, did we not hear any scuffles? Did she not scream? You know, she not, you know, nobody heard anything going on. No, there was no attendant in the area. And she says that, no, there wasn't at the time. She remembers that, but that does seem hard to believe because it's a very public place. They're, you know, especially in an expensive place like that, they're going to have people monitoring it. Most of the time you have somebody in that dressing area specifically to monitor it so people don't steal things. It's just, you know, there's no one else in the dressing room at the time. It just all seems a, a little bit strange. I, I don't know. I, there's a lot of questions here. And while, oops, while I don't want to discount anybody saying that they were raped, I do question the timing of this. The man ran for president. You had 20 people come forward to accuse him of race rape of those 20 exactly zero panned out. They were all bullshit apparently. So now she happens to have a book coming out. She knows that it's the election cycle time. And now she decides after all these years, after, after holding this in for over 20 years, now she decides I'm going to tell this story. 
Donald Trump, of course, denies it uncategorically. He says, I have no idea who this woman is. I don't know. What do you believe, folks? After the whole Kavanaugh thing, after the initial barrage of Trump accusations, I just, I don't know. I'm sure the media will harp on this thing because she's a famous columnist. I think this might be a woman who's gone over the edge, personally, uh, having seen her in Anderson Cooper is the first and only time I've ever seen her, by the way. But uh, she didn't exactly impress me, and it didn't exactly make me think that she's not a complete nutball. So, while it may have happened, and if it did, that's awful, I don't know. I have a very hard time taking this at face value. But I'm sure that the mainstream media will not, especially as Trump's made himself even more enemies by not deciding to murder more people. All right, we'll be right back. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. All right, welcome back to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 130. Of course, all the show notes at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL130. And let's talk about getting fucked. How about that? Because the Supreme Court has decided to drop those black robes and start going all 69 action on Justice Ginsburg. No, no, of course not. But they did rule in favor of F-U-C-T, fucked. A brand of clothing, I believe it's a brand of clothing anyway. Uh, yeah, clothing manufacturer who tri- filed a uh, trademark for the brand name I just mentioned and which initially was refused by the U- U.S. Patent and Trademark Office because they said it was vulgar. So Eric Brunetti, who was own- the owner of the company, fought the decision, took it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the justices ruled in his favor, which I think is awesome. And I'm going to tell you exactly why in a minute. But first, let me add Justice Samuel Alito's concurrence with a former law, which uh, actually this was, goes back to the TAM ruling, as they say, because a band called the Slants back in 2017 was able to maintain its trademark, despite the fact that they can view that, view that as a slanderous title. You know, I don't need to go into it. You know what people are when they're called slants. So Alito said this, viewpoint discrimination is poison to a free society, but in many countries with constitutions or legal traditions that claim to protect freedom of speech, serious viewpoint discrimination is now tolerated. And such discrimination has become increasingly prevalent in this country. At a time when free speech is under attack, it is especially important for this court to remain firm on the principle that the First Amendment does not tolerate viewpoint discrimination. We affirm that principle today. Uh, And basically, what we're saying here is that we've got a society, and, and I've talked about this a lot, people. We have a society that is trying to redefine what free speech means. And we're introducing this concept of hate speech or introducing this concept of speech that is harmful or aggressive or, you know, any of these, any of these 
idiotic uh, adverbs that people want to add to make something into essentially a verboten phrase, a verboten word, or a verboten way of thinking. And with the acceleration of social media interaction from people, with the uh, what we're seeing with the mainstream media involvement, where people are just so easily manipulated by clips taken out of context uh, to reinforce these points of view that turn simple phrases into quote-unquote hate speech that redefine them as being unpermissible in a civilized society, we need to fight back against this tooth and nail. And I've used this example before, but the reason this is so incredibly important to protect free speech is because when you do have the transient nature of what is good and what is evil, what is accepted, what is not accepted, when you allow that to be controlled through a court system or through social pressures even, what you're doing is causing a great disservice to the evolution of the human race. Because we look at times back when slavery was permitted, even back in times when the surf system was in place, you had certain phrases which were not allowed to be invoked. If you had a king, you were not allowed to say anything against the king. That was not permitted. That was considered forbidden speech. And thus, if you crossed that boundary, you could be jailed, you could be ostracized, you could be uh, murdered. We saw in the days of slavery where people that were pro-slavery, the abolitionists were routinely ostracized, they were beaten, they were murdered. Why? Because this speech, to go against the way in which the world was moving at this time, was considered to be hate speech. They may not have called it that, but they called it inflammatory rhetoric. They called it, you know, just that we have these because you're not allowed to uh, say anything that would incite violence against somebody. Well, these people essentially used that logic to get around it and to attack people who dared question the status quo, who dared to fight for the rights of others. Now, the people that are trying to invent all these new ways to shut down free speech in 2019 will say that they're doing it to protect people, that they're doing it to fight for the downtrodden, just like the abolitionists. But in truth, all they're doing is trying to be authoritarian and control the freedom of expression in this country. So Alito gets it exactly right in his explanation of why he ruled this man in this manner. When you have a definitive definition, when you have a phrase that can be applied that can change in a generation or less to say that something is hateful, to say that something is vulgar, to say that something is uncivilized, that can easily be defined in a short period of time by a bunch of motivated fucking assholes. We're seeing it play out before our very eyes. So we need to codify, to maintain this rule of law in which free speech is absolutely protected, unassailably protected, so that no matter which way the political assholes decide to blow, and yes, that was a conscious choice to phrase it that way, and I know the imagery it evokes, as well as the auditory and olfactory senses it might, uh, it might invoke. But whichever way the political assholes decide to blow, we are protected. We are enabled to fight back. We can maintain points of view that might not go along with predominant voices, which might still be the minority. And that seems to be the case in 2019. The most vocal voices seem to be the ones that are getting amplified by these social media platforms. They're the ones that are getting amplified by the media. They are not the voices that the majority of Americans agree with. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that these voices are wrong. I probably don't agree with a lot of them. But the point remains, there has to be a way that everyone is heard and is not summarily shut down, censored, or denied business opportunities because of a definition that has been pushed forth by a bunch of motivated dickheads. So, very happy to see this. Fucked you all. And a good day to you. Let's move on to uh, just another quick shot. Justin Amash, despite his talk of Trump impeachment, despite the fact that he might be primaried in his own state of Michigan, and we still don't know whether or not he's going to decide to join the Libertarian Party, perhaps, to uh, announce Uh, I hope if he's going to do it, he does it soon, but announced that he might join the ticket and run as a candidate against Trump in the general election. He is still fighting the good fight, and he is fighting against the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA courts, trying to amend and restrain domestic surveillance under Section 702. But he got shot down pretty strongly. His move failed by a vote of 252 to 175. This was a joint proposal from Justin Amash and Zoe Lofgren, a Democrat out of California. And I guess the amendment's no votes were split between uh, Democrats and Republicans pretty evenly. Now, you'd think in a different era that Democrats would wholeheartedly be against domestic spying, pretending to be the party of civil liberties as they do. Of course, we know that's all bullshit. Republicans, you'd think, would find it to be uh, in their best interest to stand up for the rights of individual citizens and for privacy. As you know, they've been talking about that for quite some time. But of course, talk and action are two different things, and they have proven themselves to be full of bullshit. (laughs) And you can see, after things like this, why Justin Amash has decided just to to leave it all behind. Uh, The Freedom Caucus specifically, but as I said... After suffering a defeat like this on a bill that you think would be a very forward bill, considering the state we're in as a country, considering the powers the president wields, considering that everybody wants to go to war with Iraq, you can see why Justin Amash, or excuse me, go to war with Iran, you can see why Justin Amash might be getting a little, a little tired and a little frustrated. So, good effort out there, Amash. I'd, uh, I'd smack you on the ass on your way into the locker room, you know, fight the good fight, man, but... Until we get these people out of office, nothing's going to change. All right. Next story I want to talk about real quick is these Wayfair employees who are planning a walkout on Wednesday. So it may or may not have already happened by the time you hear this episode, but they plan to walk out in response to finding out that Wayfair was going to be moving forward despite a open letter from some of the employees insisting that they break off sales to the refugee and uh, immigrants that are detained at the border. So 547 employees signed a petition asking to cease all business with border camps. And this is uh, per the Twitter handle of Wayfair Walkout. Now, I, of course, think that this is idiotic on its face. uh, But let me go a little bit deeper into into some of the the finer details of this. Number one, this is for something like $200,000 worth of sales. So we're not talking... Even, I mean, I don't even know how many beds I give. They probably gave them a big discount out. They're probably not the highest quality, but $200,000 is nothing. Nothing. My wife works at furniture sales. Granted, higher level company of furniture sales, but still, we're talking like, I don't know. I'm going to guess that's like a thousand beds. But even so, 
you're protesting the sales of these beds to detention facilities at the border, right? And I covered these before, you know, in truth, a lot of these detention facilities, the food that they're actually being fed or the food that they're creating for the immigrants, the schooling they're giving the children, all the, all the things, you know, the televisions, the entertainment, the toys, probably better than a lot of American kids have it. Just throwing it out there. I read some in-depth reporting on this uh, and, you know, just factual straightforward reporting on how much it's spent on these kids a day and the people a day, what they're fed, particularly it's not exactly the what the liberal media wants you to believe. It's not just people sitting in cages all day long, staring at the floor. They actually do make a pretty decent effort to make these, these circumstances livable. However, I'm not saying I'm in favor of detaining people overall, but I, I honestly don't know what you would do. We can't simply have, with the state of affairs we have now in the country, I do think that we cannot have open borders at this juncture. There's just far too much welfare state to be had. There's far too many civil programs going on. There's far too many taxes paid by actual citizens to warrant saying, okay, well, everybody just come in and take a piece of the pie. Anyway, if you're these people at Wayfair, what do you think is going to happen due to your boycott? I mean, if anything, you're walking out to protest these people who you think are, are having these you know terrible circumstances and they're just they're just being brutalized in there. You're separating, you're, you're walking out in this company that's trying to provide service to the government by giving them more beds so that in turn, the government can facilitate the immigrants coming into the facilities by giving them somewhere to sleep, by giving them an actual mattress to sleep on, rather than just putting some mats on the floor and saying, all right, well, lie down there. I mean, if anything, isn't this a self-fulfilling prophecy? If you walk out, you are essentially going to make circumstances for those immigrants worse because you're denying the government the ability to get them the basic human niceties like said fucking beds and mattresses. If every company decides they're not going to do business with the government, and by the way, I'm not opposed to doing that. You know, I mean, in fact, you look at what Michael Bolton does with the Tenth Amendment Center, love what he does as far as denying government access to certain, uh, you know, waterways, for instance, is how they kind of were combating different things with the NSA, denying them access to the electricity grid, denying them access to the water foundation. You know, this is a powerful way of fighting back against the government. But in this circumstance, by doing this walkout, you're literally standing in the way of immigrants getting better facilities. I get you don't like Donald Trump. I refuse to believe that this has anything to do with actual immigration policy because as we've said here a hundred times, Obama did the same exact thing. The same exact thing as far as detaining people at the border, as far as separating children from their families, which and everything I'm reading needs to be done. The reports coming out say that something as high as like 30 or 40% of the kids coming in are actually not related to the people bringing them in, that they're actually being given to people to help facilitate their entry into the country. I mean, these aren't, made up fantasy land things. These are actual things because people are despicable and they're willing to do anything to get into the country. They're willing to make money in any way they can to get into the country. And that involves human trafficking, trafficking children. So I just find it very aggravating that these, uh, these people are going to stand in the way of number one business and number two of people that are downtrodden getting a bed. And I love this too. Of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez can't, can't not get involved. And they're saying that Wayfair workers couldn't stomach they were making beds to cage children. They asked the company to stop. CEO said, no, tomorrow they're walking out. This is what solidarity looks like, a reminder that everyday people have real power as long as we're brave enough to use it. Okay. Yeah, everyday people have real power. I agree. But 
You're not making beds to cage children. They've already got the cage, idiot. They're putting beds in the cage so the children aren't sitting on the floor. So people from the media can't come and take pictures of a kid sitting on the floor, which by the way, the picture that went out of the kids sitting on the floor with uh, silver blankets around them from Obama era. Nobody likes to talk about that, but that's, that's from when Obama was in office, not Trump. Let them have the products that's going to help the people. They have too many people coming in. They're, they're building new detention facilities. They're making efforts to get more judges in there, which actually will help, even though I hate expanding the goddamn federal roles as far as employees, but they're looking to put more judges in there to try to get people through faster. Standing in the way of this accomplishes nothing. Accomplishes fucking nothing. All the government will do is go to a different manufacturer. Maybe they'll start importing things from China. Wouldn't that be funny? Wouldn't that be a twist? Or Mexico. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a twist? They'll just tell people to bring your own bed. Hey, when you're coming over, make sure before you leave the factory you're working at, uh, put a bed on your back. Bring that with you. You're going to need that at the detention facility at the border because we can't buy any beds for free to give you. Uh, I, well, free to them anyway. Of course, this costs money to the taxpayers because AOC and the idiots over at Wayfair don't want to give us any beds for you to sleep in. Just the logic here is absolutely fucking lacking. All right. Last story of the day. I like to bookend it. You know, the title for the episode had the Trump stuff and the LBGTQ stuff, but the LGBTQ stuff comes at the end. All right. So the number of Americans, 18 to 34, who are comfortable interacting with LGBTQ people slipped from 53% in 2017 to 45% in 2018. This is the only age group to show a decline, according to the Accelerating Acceptance Report. And that itself is down from 63% in 2016. So you look at these numbers, right? And actually, you know, before I go into my diatribe here, let me give you a couple more quick findings. 36% of young people said they're uncomfortable learning a family member was LGBTQ, compared with 29% in 2017. 34% uncomfortable learning their doctor was LGBTQ versus 27% a year earlier. 39% uncomfortable learning their childhood to school lesson on LGBTQ history versus 30% in 2017. That last was especially shocking to me because you honestly would really think that teaching of history, teaching of, you know, just basics about the evolution of a people and society interacting with America, that's something you wouldn't think would drop just because of what I'm about to talk about in just a moment. But it is fascinating because we're seeing the youngest people. They're supposed to be the most tolerant among us, right? You always see the most progressive being the most young. You know, that's why they're talking about lowering the voting age. Say, oh, let's drop that down to 16, which I personally am opposed to. But that's the, you know, the, the progressive mantra. The young will lead us, right? Trust in the young because their brains are the most tolerant. They're, they're, they've developed this from, from living and being inundated with all these different LGBTQ characters. LGBTQ. Got to slow down when I say that. I keep fucking it up. LGBTQ characters on TV and in stories and and commercials and you know, black and white and Chinese and everything in together and how we have to have diverse everything and we have to go out of our way to have different voices constantly. So naturally, everybody's just shocked by this poll, except little old me and probably a lot of you out there. And that's because we understand the concept, as I've discussed on the show before, of the rebound effect. And that's not only the effect where if you have a certain way of thinking, you're going to mentally rebound against somebody challenging that way of thinking. But I think it's also comes into play when you have somebody who, even if they don't have some preconceived notions, 
can simply look in the mirror and say, okay, I'm a certain color. I'm of a certain uh, sexual orientation. I'm a certain uh, part of the country. I've been raised here. I've been born here. We have certain values. And then you see that you're inundated at all times by people telling you just how evil and wrong you are. Now, this isn't just the LGBTQ community, of course. You also have this happening throughout society with the diversity initiatives. You have people being told that to be white is evil, that you need to check your white privilege, that you have to check your uh, your privilege if you're, if you're born in a certain economic strata, that you shouldn't respect yourself and that you've had it easy and that other people are more important to you and that they're better than you because they haven't had these advantages in life and how you are the cause of of everything wrong with their lives, even though you, the you, you yourself, have never met them. You know nothing about these people. You've never gone out of your way to harm them. If anything, you've tried to help them and you've had an open mind. And that's really, I think, what this comes down to as well. Nobody likes to be told that they are ignorant, that they are hateful, that they don't have an open mind. And when you have LGBTQ pushing as hard as they are, wherein, you know, I just said this earlier, when you, when you have these these television programs, these commercials, these everything else, you know, it was slowly introduced, right? You look back to maybe the 90s, early 2000s, even back in the 80s, you had gay characters, but they weren't pushed as hard as they're pushed today. They were here and there, they were kind of worked in. And in truth, I think it makes more sense that the way in which they were worked in and the number of gay characters that did exist in certain uh, pop culture mediums and film and TV, et cetera, Wherein you say, okay, what portion of the population is gay? Maybe it's 10%. I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the exact numbers are. But you say, okay, if 10% of the population is gay, then maybe it makes sense to have 10% of the people on our entertainment mediums be gay. Maybe you have a couple shows here and there that are gay-centric to cater to that specific population sector. But, you know, we don't have to really go out of our way to push the gay narrative on people who, you know, are probably fine with gay people, but don't really care. And in truth, for me, it makes more sense to do it that way, wherein you introduce somebody to a character and then you flip it on its head and you challenge the stereotypes. And those Simpsons, before they decided that they were going to be completely PC douche assholes and eliminate characters like Apu, I'm sure the episode with Roger Waters would never air today, wherein, yeah, what, honestly, one of the best episodes of The Simpsons ever created, where Roger Waters... Uh, the famous filmmaker with the pencil mustache. He came on The Simpsons as a gay character in town. Bart became enamored with him, and uh, Homer was worried that Bart was going to turn gay. And so you see Homer at first, he was really into this, this character as well. I can't remember the name of the show. He was into all the zany stuff at his shop, all this kit shop he had and the throwback stuff. And he really just thought he was the greatest guy ever until he found out that he was gay. And once he found out he was gay, he turned against that character and he's worried that he's going to turn his son gay. And he brought to bear all of the idiotic stereotypes that we worry about when we talk about homophobia and ignorance. But then at the end, of course, they were able to flip that on its head. They're able to showcase that stupidity and turn it on its head and show that this is a good guy. And he comes through in the end and he saves them in a clever way at the end. And Homer says, you know, maybe I was wrong about this. But either way, you're still embracing stereotypes to break them down. And, you know, I myself... I have gay cousins. I have gay uncles. I have, you know, I have a lot of gay family and, uh, and I've, I've always been pretty comfortable with gay people. Of course, also being in the theater helps with that. <laughs> so, you know, there's 10% of the population might be gay, but it's 80% of theater people. 
So I personally have never had a, a, any issue with gay people or uh, LGBTQ people, I should say. You know, the broad spectrum, not, I don't really care. None of it bothers me. But when you have this acceleration of content, when you have an acceleration of storylines, of characters, of all these things that are just constantly pushed into your face, I think that most people, when especially when you have the vast majority of people being straight, you know, that you're going to have a pushback. You're going to have people saying, I'm sick of this. Now you add that in to all of the hate, you know, and I, I call it hate, they, they, you know, the gay community will call it hate against them. But really when you see this aggressive hatred towards straight people, towards the norms, as, uh, as, as we're probably referred to, and you have it just be completely unfiltered and nobody dares to challenge it. You can say the nastiest, most horrible things about straight people and white people and whatever you want to say and without fear of repercussion. Well, people are going to get very fed up with that. And the young people especially are going to get very fed up because they haven't come through the era of remembering how bad it was for gays at one point in time. Remembering when gays were ostracized, when gays were treated as, as true outsiders, when they were beaten, when they were uh, not allowed into certain, you know, certain environments. Now they've grown up in an environment of, okay, well, gay people are you know, accepted pretty much everywhere. So what's the big deal? Why am I being told that I'm such a shithead nonstop when we have gay marriage, right? We're talking about the youngest generation here. So all these people probably don't remember a time really they were very young when gay marriage wasn't accepted, uh, when gay clubs and gay shows and gay restaurants and all this other stuff wasn't accepted, when people weren't allowed to be outwardly gay. So their question is saying, why am I getting all this shit? Why are people coming at me? It seems that they have the same rights as anybody else. And yet I'm being told that I'm evil when I haven't done shit to them. Now, I do believe that a large part of this is due to the trans emphasis as well. I think people, I think there's a separation between people saying, okay, look, two people are, want to be together. You know, they're, they're gay. They want to be married. Fine. We, you know, we, we, don't, we don't know if it's nature or nurture, but we, we're fine with that. doesn't bother me. doesn't bother my way of life. I think the emphasis of the trans community now and the LGBT community saying, okay, well, we got our gay rights uh, settled up. You know, the, the gays and lesbians can marry. Now we need to fight for the trans rights. I think that is something as well that, that might impact people a little bit more because they don't know what to make of that. They don't know how to understand it quite as well as a simple gay straight. And also that there's so much more vitriol and it's a little bit stranger for people to see that a man that wants to dress as a woman and go into the woman's bathroom, that's going to make all the women uncomfortable. Just period it is. Or a woman that's dressed as a man wants to go in the man's bathroom, that's going to make people uncomfortable. It just is. But then to be told that your uncomfortableness with something that's been pushed through society for millennia of separating the women and the men in their distinctive fashions for taking shits and pisses, that to question that, to be uncomfortable, makes you an evil or wrong person, that again is going to have a specific effect. And we're going to see that in the younger generation again, because they feel that of anybody, they've done nothing wrong this whole time. They're not at fault for the ills that, pre you know, that came before them. So now they're coming into a new brand of hatred that is born out of this acceptance, yet nestled in the LGBTQ's community that has created this new way of hating straight folks and is not shy about telling them about it 
in every possible medium they can. So until they wise up and pull back a little bit, I think this is going to get worse before it gets better. And you're going to see an increase in violence. You're going to see an increase in quote unquote hate speech. You're going to increase in, in all of these things until some sort of equilibrium is found where they pull back and take their foot off the gas pedal. Otherwise, they just can continue to piss people off. All right. Well, on that happy note, I'm going to finish up this post pork fest episode, which actually went much longer than I thought it would. So you're welcome, America. And uh, wherever else you're listening. All right. From me, Brian McWilliams, from the Lions of Liberty and from Electric Liberty Land, always stay plugged into Liberty.